Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. I just had an amazing episode with Simon Dixon. Simon Dixon has been around for so long in the space, since 2011, and was actually at the first Bitcoin conference that ever existed, along with people like Eric Voorhees, myself, Roger Veer, and some crazy people. The stories he told were epic. Simon is the founder and CEO of a very, very famous company in the crypto space called Bank to the Future. He was involved in the banking world for so long, and he saw a lot of problems with it. When he launched Bank to the Future, he gave a platform and a way for all of the crypto companies that you know today to actually raise money for their investments. So really, the fact that infrastructure exists in crypto today is largely credited because of the company that Simon created. I mean, we're talking about like Bitstamp, Kraken, uh, Unocoin. You're talking about a lot of the mining companies and miners. They all raised money through Bank to the Future for equity. This is before the ICOs and before the tokens. So Simon knows everyone, his Rolodex is as big as mine, and he's a great person because he completely understands why the whole banking system is such a house of cards and crypto's changing that. Enjoy the show, guys, and I'll talk to you right after the ads. I'm so honored that Untold Stories is sponsored by eToro. eToro is the smartest crypto trading platform and one of the largest in the world with over a trillion dollars in trading volume per year. What I really love about eToro is that the CEO has been around the Bitcoin space since 2012, so they really, really put their money where their mouths are. US customers, myself included, we can trade the most popular crypto assets, in fact, almost all of the ones that you want to trade with low but transparent fees, so you actually know what you're paying for everything. And that's really, really, really important. So if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice building your portfolio with the eToro $100,000 virtual trading feature. So you can create this whole portfolio without trading with any real money to see how you'll do. And you can learn all the different ins and outs without using any real money yet. And then once you're comfortable, you can enter the market and start buying and selling crypto for real. Best of all, one of my favorite features is that you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders in the world, myself included. And we can talk trading, charts, and all things crypto. So listen, head on over to eToro.com. Links are in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Scott Offord, the creator of crypto mining. Scott was my first sponsor for Untold Stories and really called me up and said, Charlie, I love what you're doing. I really want to sponsor your show and further the education. Scott Offord is the super czar of crypto mining. He's a broker of ASIC mining gear, helps people buy and sell their miners. So if you want to buy mining tools, if you want to buy miners, if you have any questions on how it works, if you want to sell your miners or even just broker them, Scott is the guy to call. Not only that, but he created a free Bitcoin mining profitability calculator at CryptoMining.Tools. That's the website. And it also has an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart. What that means is he has all these different fields where you could enter data like, you know, the cost of your miners, the cost of your electricity. And it takes into it takes in things into comparison, like the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. And it gives you things like what are your how many days until your return on investment? Is it even profitable for you to be mining all these other type of information, which products to get? It's your one-stop shop for learning how to actually mine for Bitcoin or any of the other altcoins that have mining built in. Give Scott a call, send him a message. You can follow him on Telegram and at Twitter at Offered Scott. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. Of course, the links are in the show notes. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. 
So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. My guest today, Simon Dixon. It's interesting because Simon wrote a book in, he wrote two books actually, but he wrote a book called Bank to the Future in 2012. But Simon, welcome to the show. You started writing this book in in 2005, right? You started writing this book way before fintech or Bitcoin or even anyone was talking about like changing the financial system. Yes. So uh, Bank to the Future was um, a book over several drafts and the very last draft that I wrote was published on, I think, 1st of February or 1st of January 2012. So that I started writing in 2010, uh, released it in 2011, and then it went to the published version. Uh, prior to that, I was doing a lot of written pieces um, on uh, banking, monetary reform, and I was part of a community around changing banks before Bitcoin was created. And then you you took it one step further, and most people just write books and they engage conversation. You took it a step further. You launched banktothefuture.com, which everyone knows really allowed the early crypto companies from from raising money because back then, um, even even now, it's very very difficult um, to raise to raise money. I mean, we're talking about the likes of Bitstamp, Kraken, BitPay, um, Shapeshift, Storage, um, BitPesa. Fact, um, just off the top of my head, these are companies that raise money um, on the Bank to the Future platform. And really, um, one can could credit you with giving those companies the ability, I mean, building the infrastructure for, for, for the crypto space to even exist where it is today. Yeah, well, um, banktothefuture.com is an interesting story, and hopefully we'll go through that today. Um, but it originally, the original vision was I wanted to create a bank. Um, okay, that's very kind of very difficult to do. Uh, very difficult to do. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we went through several iterations of trying to do that. But, um, you know, I was introduced to Bitcoin uh, really early. And when I discovered what Bitcoin was doing, um, we decided that there was not really much point building a bank because a bank in a box was being built out of Bitcoin. And so we started really dedicating it to building a platform whereby companies that were going to build on top of that, um, you know, and, and facilitate the growth of this alternative finance system. Uh, we just wanted to invest and we wanted to use it to support. And uh, we started looking at, you know, securities laws instead of banking laws um, and uh, allowed the whole community to build it to what it is today. I can imagine you guys sitting in a room together and saying, all right, guys, so we need to launch. We're trying to launch this bank. It's not working. Um, what are we trying to do here? Well, we're trying to launch a bank of the future. All right, what should we call it? Let's call it Bank to the Future. <laughs> is, that, is that where the name came from? Uh, that's exactly well. Um, so it was co-founded by myself and uh, my wife. So my wife was working in retail banking. I was working in investment banking. In 2006, we decided to throw in the corporate towel. Um, and uh, I was giving lots of talks around the world on uh, the problems with banking. And, you know, I wasn't using the words like financial crisis and systemic risk, and um, but I was talking about it before the financial crisis. Um, and the financial crisis was really a, a catalyst event for us from speaking to a few people in the room to, to going around the world speaking uh, everywhere on the topic. Um, but uh, my wife just got really fed up with uh, me speaking to politicians, to bankers, um, around things that need to change, and no one really giving a damn. So her idea was, uh, why don't we just create a bank and show, show them what a sustainable bank could look like? Um, and really, that's when we decided to uh, work on uh, Bank to the Future. Uh, I guess... Um, it was a name that came up in a dream, and uh, obviously the the book Bank to the Future was a, a bit of a time travel journey where we tried to solve many of the challenges in banking, and then we took that brand across uh, to the company when we created BankToTheFuture.com. Tell me, tell me how you guys got started. But before I get into that, um, I know there was a, you talk you talk about how your wife was in retail banking and you were in investment banking. 
Um, and I'm not as familiar with the banking world as I should be, um, which is surprising, right? But wasn't there a push to separate retail and investment banking into like two separate things? I know that most banks today do both. Wasn't there a push to separate them and said that if you're in retail banking, you can't do investment banking anymore and vice versa? Uh, there was, yeah. And so during the last, um, when when we came out of the Great Depression in the 1930s, um, one of the, the the banking reforms enacted by President Roosevelt in the States was something called the Glass-Steagall Act. And the Glass-Steagall Act was designed to separate retail and investment banking. Um, but the separation was really uh, removed over time through financial engineering. Um, and uh, it didn't really become a major issue again until we had the, the subprime crisis. Um, and more recently, we had Dodd-Frank Dodd uh, reforms around just separating the activities of deposit taking and speculation around investment banking. Um, but one thing that history has always shown is that there's always a financial in, uh, innovation that a bank can come up with in order to uh, move the goalposts and, and skirt around such, uh, such regulations. Interesting. Is that a law now? Are they actually separated or can, can, can banks do retail and, and uh, investment banking together? Um, they can't do it together under the same roof, but they can do it under separate entities and separate institutions. Uh, still owned by the same. But how does that actually change anything? Um, it doesn't really. And that's okay. why none of That's the, what's confusing me. Yeah. Uh, none of the reforms that, that make our banking system work again um, have actually been looked at since uh, the Great Depression of the 30s all the way through. Um, and this is what really got me um, into uh, this area was um, actually, you know, the, none of the reforms are, have actually been implemented. We went through such a crazy Great Depression, right? Not, and I'm not even talking about 2008. I'm talking about the original Great Great Depression, like almost 100 years ago, 80 years ago or so. And you would think out of um, something so inhibiting for our country We've, we would have a banking overhaul. And in fact, we did. Uh, most people know that when you talk what came out of the Great Depression, came out the um, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is the, basically a, a money printer that comes out of the government. And the government says, well, insure your bank accounts if your bank goes under up to $250,000. But that, that just all that does is the government's printing more money, right? So what really came out of the Great Depression was the government say, we're going to actually just print more money. Well, I mean, that's the cycle. So, you know, the, 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 essentially the, the, the root issue, and I, I, I didn't want to go too in-depth, but let, let's, let's cover uh, the, the basic things. Let's just cover the bases before we go into Yeah, fast. so there was this, in, in the book, I talk about these three fundamental problems with banking. One is that when you deposit your money with a bank, the bank becomes the legal owner of your money. Um, and so, okay, wait, so most people, uh, sorry for interrupting you because this is a good primer for people who don't know. Say that one more time. Uh, when you deposit your money at the bank, the bank becomes the legal owner of your money. It is no longer your money. They so just you promise to give it back to you if you, if you request it. 99.9% .9 of Americans or even global citizens keep their money at banks. When you keep your money at a bank, it's not your money anymore. Okay, just want to get that sure. out Sure, I mean, you know, and if the bank wants to use it in order to uh, bail in their bank, they can. Um, if they want to stop you from spending it, they can. Um, and they're perfectly within their right to do that. So, um, you know, the, that is the first force, uh, the first thing. The second thing is because the money is legally theirs, um, they can actually use it and spend it as they choose. And so you ninety so the banks are actually dictating the flow of money in an economy by how they choose to use your deposit and leverage your deposit to create more money. Um, the third thing is uh, that banks are actually the creators of money, and uh, when they create money, it's actually a debt. Um, and so, therefore, in order to stimulate an economy. Because the governments have outsourced the ability to create money to the private banking sector, um, you always have the incentive to create more and more debt in order to stimulate an economy. Um, so the solution 
since the Great Depression, since the birth of the central banking system, has always been what can we innovate in order to get more consumers into debt to increase the money supply, uh, more businesses into debt to increase the money supply. And if that all fails, how can we, as the government, take on more debt in order to increase the money supply? And if that all maxed out, the central bank. I have to say it's it's quite a it's quite a coincidence that you were writing books about this and you launched Bank to the Future around the same time that Satoshi released the white paper and Bitcoin was launched. It's it like Bitcoin couldn't couldn't have been launched at a better time for you. Um, isn't that, <laughs> some people are going to ask if you're Satoshi? Well, uh, I'm definitely not Satoshi, and uh, I'm a finance guy that found technology, and I've struggled with, um, you know, adjusting to, you know, m- most people, um, I think you, yourself included, Charlie, you were, you know, you were from a technical background, and then through Bitcoin found finance. Um, I, I did the opposite, um, and I was a, a finance guy that was lucky enough to find Bitcoin, and Bitcoin was really a solution to a really big problem that we were trying to solve at the time. And uh, I just was in the right, we were in the right place at the right time. Um, and Bitcoin just really, you know, gave us that solution uh, that we were looking for. And it's perfect. It really is a perfect solution. So on that note, um, I've heard stories of like events and conferences that you were at going back 2011 Um by some of my other guests. So um, tell me, tell me how you got into the space and and what you thought about it and, and what you did. I mean, um, you were really there uh, around the same time I was there, and and some of the early guys were there. Yeah. So um, you know, the um, my first introduction to Bitcoin was I, I was we were obviously writing the book Bank to the Future. Um, my my wife was uh, you know actually really instrumental in helping us find Bitcoin as well. Um, but I was writing the book, um, and a guy. I got a I got a Facebook message. So the community that I was involved in at the time, before Bitcoin, was called um, Monetary Reform, and it was a very niche, tiny community that really believed that um, the the way money was created was a big problem and was going to cause lots of problems. Um, and it was a real niche community. Uh, very few people were interested. Um, but I remember as I was, um, one of the members was a guy called, uh, Johnny Bitcoin was his name on Twitter. I think he's no longer on Twitter. Johnny Bitcoin. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, his, his name is, uh, yeah. So you probably remember Johnny Bitcoin. So Johnny Bitcoin, I've still got it to, to today. Um, he sent me a Facebook message saying, Hey, have you, uh, have you heard about Bitcoin? I believe it's the future. Um, and he was so enthusiastic about it. He was in, I was in the UK at the time. And he actually sold his house um, and moved into a squat with a guy called Amir Taki. Um, and uh, they were in, the, they were coding up um, different things. And uh, he decided to put all of his money, sold his house and put it into Bitcoin. And he was so passionate about it um, and uh, got, got me, you know, really got it in front of my mind. Um, I still got the Facebook message when he when he sent it and a, and a link to uh, various things. Um, and so I included it in the book. And as far as I know, um, I could be wrong, but because that was the first published book in the world that included Bitcoin. Um, and it was thanks to, to Johnny Bitcoin. Um, but thanks, I remember, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. At this phase, I'd been through um, several iterations of trying to create a bank, um, meeting different regulators, um, being told that we're not the type of people that you that could create a bank, you you're have to have. The, you're not yeah. the type of people that could create a bank. That was the exact um, <laughs> wording that we got from one of the regulators. What does we, that mean? Well, um, we didn't look like the type of people that they think could create a bank. Um, they they wanted a chief executive that had direct experience, um, and really, it it kind of pissed us off so much that we were determined to do it more than ever. Um, and, uh, we'd spent all of our money. So all of our savings have been spent on, uh, trying to create this bank. We were about 50 to a hundred K in the hole at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, the regulators were telling us that we, we weren't able to do it. Um, it was then that I got that message from Johnny Bitcoin. Um, and we scram, you know, we, we put together our tiny, uh, you know, bit of savings that we could. 
uh, and we found out about this conference that Amir Taki was organizing um, in Prague. Um, and uh, that was the first Bitcoin conference in Europe. I think it was the second one after the New York conference. Yes. The New York conference um, was run by, I think it was the Bruce Wagner conference um, in 2011. What? Was it Bruce that think, put that together? I think, yeah, I was there. It was the it was the first, yeah, the first Bitcoin conference in New York was run by Bruce Wagner. Let me tell you something. 99% of people listening to this show have no idea who Bruce Wagner is. I'm going to have him on the show if I could find him. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of this show, Charlie, because I really believe that the, the untold stories, are, uh, uh, you know, putting together an archive of, of uh, these stories is really uh, important because I think, so many people join at different phases. Sure, um, yeah, of course. And it's still it's still being created, you know? The story is still being created. So you were at this... Um, that's how you came up in conversation the other days. I was talking about Amir, and um, I'm trying to get Amir on the show, um, but he's not answering his, his old phone number. But I think I have his new contact information. Yeah, Amir, Amir is, a, is, a, is a pretty wild guy, so he goes on and off um, for years, I think. I saved his life once. He never Did tells you? that story. I literally saved his life. We were in, we were, interestingly enough, we were riding Segways in Vienna. Um, it was me, Amir, um, Roger Veer, Eric Voorhees, and a bunch of other people, literally. So imagine, like, down the streets of Vienna, me, Roger, Eric, Amir riding a Segway down the road. So just, just that scene itself is, is funny in and of itself. But <laughs> Amir being the crazy one that he is, he, he basically wasn't looking and he went into the street as a bus was coming in, like, like right at him. And I yelled Amir and I went into the street and pushed him out of the way. And we both missed the bus. Wow. That sounds just like the Amir. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. And he, I, I, I want to, when I have him on the show, I'm going to bring the story up and see if he remembers. But I have witnesses. Like, if you ask Roger about that story, he'll literally repeat it word for word. Yeah, amazing. Um, so, yeah, Amir put on a, a conference in Prague. Um, and we we put together our last bit of money, got together a flight to Prague. Um, and I was asked to give a talk on, um, you know, how the difference between banking and Bitcoin. And actually some of the three topics that we opened the show with are still, um, what it was, what I was discussing at the time. Um, and I was pretty much the only finance guy, you know, amongst a, a bunch of what I'd call, um, crypto anarchists and, uh, computer science geeks. Um, and I was just really, really inspired. Um, my, my wife came with me and we walked away believing um, that this was just such an important thing. We, we still, you know, we still were very skeptical about whether it would succeed or not. Um, but we were completely inspired by the people in the room um, and believed that, uh, you know, th this, this could be something that, that would, would be a solution to the problems we were experiencing at the time. And so what happened at that? Who did you meet? Uh, so I was, uh, so I, I gave a presentation. Um, after me was when I first met Max Kaiser was there. Um, I believe this conference was when Bitcoin crashed from $30 to three. Dude, uh, so I, that's where I lost all my money. I remember I that the price was pumping to 36. Do you remember? And I bought, I bought around $32 and I got wrecked. The price went to like $2. That was the, the biggest loss I ever sustained. Well, I probably, I ended up buying a Cassius coin with five Bitcoins uh, at that conference. Oh, that's um, great. And uh, yeah, it was a crash. Um, Tony Gallippi was there pitching BitPay. Um, who else was there? It was sponsored by Mt. Gox. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was, that was the home of... Um, I'm not sure whether Trezor had been created at that point, but it was the home of. Um, it was. It Trezor. wasn't Trezor yet. It was. It was Slush. It was um, Slush uh, was there. I think he said, um, and Elena. Elena. I don't know if Elena was involved yet. But Elena was there, yeah. She was there. She was. Yeah. Okay, and so maybe Trezor was still being conceived, but I think it didn't come out until 2014. But. Um, what were your, some impressions of some of the people in the space? Like, I mean, you're you're coming from the investment banking world. You're coming from uh, trying to launch your own bank. Very professional people. 
where you're being told that you're not professional enough. Here you walk into this conference with with back then where some of the um, leaders of the sp- of the space. Right. And here you are, probably the most professional one out of the whole group. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember what I wore. I think <laughs> flip flops. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was just a truly inspiring conference. I, I, one funny thing was the, the after party. Um, so there was a there was a hackathon afterwards, and um, I remember you had to go around Prague and you had to get these different secret codes in order to find the location. Um, and, uh, we, we were going around Prague and, you know, in, in Prague, there's some pretty, you know, it's a beautiful place. I really love Prague. I don't know if you've been, but there's also some really sketchy looking places. Yeah. Um, and you, ha- you had to go down these, uh, back alleys and get a code and then it would, uh, you have to figure out how to decrypt a message. Um, and then eventually you got to this building that I could only describe as a crack den. Um, and you you walk through this building, um, you know, on what, what looked like you were going to, well, you're going to be mugged at any point. Uh, and eventually you give a secret knock on a certain door and there's a bunch of, um, hackers there with anonymous masks on, um, all hacking away. And, uh, the very first version of, uh, a QR code where you could buy a Mars bar for about a Bitcoin, I think it was or something. Um, and that was a, that was a real interesting experience. The after party. You didn't come from like this hacker world, did you? No, I mean, you know, uh, this was all completely new to me. We were trying to, you know, we were, we were just engaging technology people at the time to build, um, out some of our systems. And so this was a, this was a completely new world to me. Um, you know, the, the, the whole techno technology and cyberpunk world. Did you ever say to yourself that? Like the, you know, so what you were looking at was this hacker and anar- you know anarchist movement. I mean, so so extreme. It's not even libertarian yet. Libertarian would be like less extreme, but the movement, you know, the hackathon, the the those groups in the early days, the forums, everything, everything on IRC. Um, did you ever say to yourself that hey, like if this thing would ever become real or significant and taken seriously, it would need to be um, less of you know, the anarchist type of mentality? I don't, I don't think I thought that far ahead, Charlie. It's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting to, um, you know, we, we were just uh, a bunch of, you know, me, myself and my wife, we've been on this, this roadshow of being ignored by people. Um, and uh, we just saw this technology and the, the, the compute, the, you know, the, the real tech people that were giving presentations at the conference uh, we just saw some, we, you know, it was it was over our head, and we just saw some really, really intelligent people um, that were creating something that seemed like it was there was really going to be something behind it, enough to inspire us um, to really adjust our business model and, and really focus on this industry. Etoro is crypto trading made easy. It's one of the largest and smartest trading platforms in the world with extraordinarily low and transparent fees. Join myself and 11 million other traders and create an account at etoro.com. Links in the show notes and build your crypto portfolio the smart way. As a mining equipment broker, Scott Offered wants to make sure his clients are well-informed and making data-backed business decisions. Scott created the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI for miners. It's a better way to compare the efficiency of various models of ASIC miners and to see how the price of the miner and the efficiency impacts your mining profitability. So check it out at CryptoMining.Tools and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. That's O-F-F-O-R-D. S-C-O-T-T. Well, what did you understand Bitcoin to be back then? This was pre-smart contracts, pre-Ethereum, um, pre-anything except like Bitcoin as money. Um, what did you see Bitcoin as? So um, one of the big problems we were having at the time is that because uh, I was going through all the different ways of creating money um, and understanding all the different models that could exist to create money. We came to the realization that over the years, um, the government has outsourced the ability to create money to the private banking sector. Um, and there were all these technologies that were being created in the UK, like peer-to-peer lending. There was a company called Zopa that started in 2006. Um, and there was this whole movement around 
replacing the bank with financial technology companies. Um, but there was always one big problem, and that is that because the bank is responsible for creating money, even if you have a peer-to-peer lending money, the best you can do is lend money that's rehypothecated by a bank and built off a fractional reserve system. And so we were, you know, really looking at what are the alternative models. And uh, one of the models that we came up with is probably worse than the existing model, which is that you actually have a central bank create the money as people think it is, um, rather than have a, a private bank create the money as it does today. And we thought to ourselves, well, if that's the solution, that's probably worse than the existing solution. At least money creation is kind of privatized, competing, um, and one step removed from the government and central bank. And if the solution is to have the central bank create it, um, then you're stuck in this system. And really, there is no way out of the system, no matter how much technology you create. And so when we discovered Bitcoin, we saw a solution to the fact that a money, a, a form of money could exist outside of the traditional banking system and really give people a way to transact without actually um, being involved in the fractional reserve system. So we saw it, if I'm honest at the time, as full reserve banking um, was kind of how we were looking at it at the time. Does full reserve banking work though? I mean, then how do you, how do you increase the amount of money that you can lend to people if there's a finite amount of money in the system? Um, well, you don't have to have a fixed full reserve banking model. Um, and the, 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 the issue is I, I don't have an issue with debt, but money created as debt by a bank um, is when you conflate the two issues together. Of that's money. a very good point. Can you, re- can you repeat that? Yeah, I don't have an issue with debt. Um, if, you're exist- you know, if you're lending existing deposits that were created in a certain, you know, in, in, a, in a fair monetary system way. Yeah. then debt is not necessarily an issue. But when you combine money creation with debt, which is how you have it today, then you're always incentivized to create more debt. To create more money. And the reason I asked you to repeat that is because hopefully it brings a light bulb moment uh, with, 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 with the listeners that when you have institutions that are incentivized to print more money so they can make more money, um, that is a problem in and of itself. So essentially institutions can create the, you know, the, the central banks and, and the banks can can print more money in order to lend it out. When you connect those two, there's no real incentive to try to bring that back a little bit to be responsible with it. Yeah. And, and you know, this is the, 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 the impossible to solve problem that we were looking at at the time, which is, in its simplest form, the reason you have boom, bust, boom, bust is because in order to have more money in the current monetary system, you have to have more debt. In, if you want less debt, then you have to have less money. And so really politicians use monetary policy or central banks use monetary policy in order to stimulate um, people taking on more debt by either lowering interest rates or whatever it might be. But then this bogey calls inflation comes along and you want to deflate the economy slightly because it's overheating. And so you send the people that took on the debt bankrupt by putting up interest rates in this boom bust, boom bust cycle and this problem and Ponzi scheme that can never actually been solved. And so when we saw Bitcoin, we saw a solution to uh, something that we thought was very hard to solve at the time. Okay, so what did you do next? You, you were at this conference, you met all these quirky, crazy people. Um, you flew back home. What was the next step? Uh, well, the first step was to make sure we had some Bitcoin. Um, that's, that's, that's the perfect first yeah. step. Um, and that wasn't easy at the time. Um, so the second step was we were working, um, we were, we were rethinking bank to the future and what we wanted to do. Um, at the time there were three companies in the UK that were working on turning, um, building what was called as an equity crowdfunding platform. One of them was us. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to create a way whereby we could support, rather than creating a bank, uh, we could invest in all the companies that might actually 
uh, end up creating all the different, you know, all the different types of technology that might end up being combined together to create a bank. And uh, so we started, rather than trying to secure a banking license, we started working on securities licenses. Um, and we built the platform whereby we could allow people to invest in financial technology companies. Um, now, at this, at this stage, uh, we spent a lot of our time on making it legal in the UK in order to allow people to invest um, online and companies to sell equity online without having to go public. Um, and that was something you couldn't do at the time. Uh, so, Really? Yes. Um, you, you had to actually, in order to do a public offering, you had to actually go public in order to meet those requirements then you had to uh, be uh, at a certain size or position in your company. So how would one, before before you, how would one in the UK, how would a company raise money if they didn't go public? I mean, they'd have to basically know private institutions, which are very difficult to do. And so before you, you weren't allowed to go online and try to bring in um accredited or non-accredited investors? No, so um, at the time, you, you it was venture capital was the only game. You either received an angel investor um, or you were in a fortunate position where you could get a venture capitalist to invest. Um, and, you know, the, the, the issue we had is, uh, yeah, we so there was three companies we were all applying um, and we spent four years <laughs> uh, trying to get a model that would work. Eventually, we got uh, a model that would uh that we got registered by uh, at the time it was called the FSA and then um, it switched to now being called the FCA, which was the regulator in the UK. But after four years of pushing this model, um, the the thing that later became known as equity crowdfunding was born in the UK and came from the UK. Um, and it started succeeding for our, the other two companies because they were just funding like, uh, you know, pubs or, or, retail companies but we wanted to fund financial technology companies and the permission that we were given was that we could only fund uk businesses from uk investors this was before the jobs act correct or was the jobs act in the us that allowed for equity fundraising was that no, in jobs act yet? didn't exist at this stage um the jobs act oh, wow. was um as a result of seeing the success that happened in the uk a hundred percent. So essentially, oh, this is like literally the definition of trailblazing right here. Um, but hold on, you. Um, I want to be able to invest in pubs. Yeah, uh, so you could do that through our competitors, um, but our <laughs> particular niche. You got to remember where we came from. So you know, we we were we were a, a retail banker and an investment banker that believed the system was a Ponzi scheme. We threw in our corporate towel to create a bank. Um, after years of trying to do that and failing um, because we couldn't get past the wall gardens and through the regulators, um, we were invited to the first Bitcoin conference to speak. Uh, we, you know, we made, um, you know, we, we believed that Bitcoin was a solution. And so we started uh, wanting to, you know, Bitcoin did well for us after that. Um, and we wanted to dedicate our platform and what we'd done to supporting the financial technology industry. Um, our competitors were, you know, um, allowing people to invest in everyday businesses, which is really good. They succeeded at that. But we were here because we wanted to make a difference in financial system. Um, and so the, the fact that we were only able to work with UK businesses and UK investors and we were dealing with a crazy niche technology like uh, Bitcoin and Bitcoin companies. There was just no market. Uh, it had to be done on a global scale or not at all. Um, and so really that's uh, at that stage was when we decided that it was time to leave the UK and try and work on a more global model. So you uh, moved to Hong Kong. Yeah. So then we decided to personally relocate to Hong Kong. And we started um, working with regulators that were more globally minded uh, rather than niche for their own uh, jurisdiction. So uh, we registered with the Cayman Island Monetary Authority. Uh, we moved to Hong Kong. And, um, and really, once we got that model up and running, 
then you know we we started working with many of the early stage uh, crypto companies that were finding it hard to raise funding. Nobody was interested. Um, you know, some of the early ones with companies like uh, Shapeshift, and uh, you know, it was really a, a difficult industry. Um, Kraken, we did the. Oh, you're telling you're telling me that I had to to raise money for a bit instant in 2011. 2011, I literally I went on Bruce Wagner's show actually, and I I got on my hands and knees and I said, if anyone's watching out there, um, I really need money for a bit instant. What do I do? Please call me. And that night I got a Skype call from a guy by the name of Roger Veer that you and I know. And Roger said, um, I'm going to put in a hundred thousand dollars. Just tell me where to send it. And, um, and that was that, but it was, I was kicked out of every VC fund office in New York and California. Um, this was 2011. No one would take me seriously. Um, who were some of the first companies that approached you what year was that? Was that, and what did you think of them? So we started really having a model that could work around about 2014, 2015. Um, I think if God, it's, it's hard to remember the exact first one, but I think one of the very first one was Factum. Um, we had Shapes yes. at the same time. Um, Kraken was uh, trying to secure. It secured. I think it already secured a bit of seed funding, but it needed a follow-on bridge round. Um, we these have are some major companies today. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, these are some of. I mean, you know, Bitstamp. one of our most successful um, unicorns that we've uh, done today. Uh, we have Bitstamp. Yeah, they just done the Pantera round, and we co-invested on Bank to the Future in Bitstamp. Um, we also had we made a direct investment in BitPay. Um, and uh, Storage were some of the early ones as well that were kind of getting ready to do their token sales, but token sales weren't really a thing at that point. Uh, one of the most successful investments was we actually put together an equity uh, round to invest in Ethereum mining from day one of Ethereum. Um, wow. And many of the people, uh, many of the investors in that fund uh, they're, they're very passive investors because most of our investors are, are fairly high net worth. Um, some of them still haven't logged back into their account. They were receiving Ethereum every day from their Ethereum mining, and they still haven't logged into their account today to see the the large oh my God. Ethereum that they actually got from that mining. Oh my God, you're hurting me right now. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because sometimes um, the best approach in investing in this industry um, has been to not be active and proactive in trying to understand the industry. And some of our investors that have done the best are the ones that kind of get about their day job um, and don't really follow everything because there's so many crazy things that happen in our industry that make you, um, you know, and, and nothing really follows, uh, you know, over the years, so many different things have happened in our industry that if you applied normal logic to it, you would have been out ages ago. Yeah, the term the term hodl is, you know, that let's talk about that for a second because so the term hodl, you know, uh hold basically where it came from is so symbolic about the space because now everyone jokes and they say hodl and there's all these mantras. Most people don't know where the actual term hodl came from, H O D L, and was basically on, you know, it was like it was when it was such an early Bitcoin bubble. I forget which one it was. I think it was like 2014 maybe or 13 when a guy went on the Bitcoin talk forum and he he was so drunk. He wrote one paragraph and he's like, yeah, Bitcoin's crashing and my wife is out at a at a bar with some other people and you know, I'm losing all my money. I'm watching it, but I'm not going to sell. I'm going to hodl. And he was so drunk. He was misspelling every word and he misspelled hold. But it's so symbolic because that became like a, a war cry of the, of the space. But it's so symbolic because if that I'm assuming that guy actually held. And if he did, he would come out on top 100x from that day till today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, one of the interesting stories, actually. Um, so we were looking for our first financial technology company. And uh, we were working with a series of eight, uh, like we had an ATM producer in the UK. I think the ATMs are still there. Um, 
we had someone that was creating, um, do you remember, it wasn't CoinKite, but uh, they created a uh, one of those uh, point of sale terminals for Bitcoin. Um, and I think he would, and one of them, I remember Johnny Bitcoin came around because he was uh, looking for funding for his next uh, venture. Uh, he could obviously fund it himself, but he was also looking for some investors. Um, and he brought around uh, this 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 guy called Gavin Wood, um, and they were they they were talking about this uh, concept of Ethereum and uh, the ICO coming up. And uh, yeah, they they came across to our our office that we had in the UK at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, that that later went on to become uh, one of the most successful investments, obviously, um, outside of Bitcoin. Where do you see the future of the space? Um, well, I'm still really excited about the impact that Bitcoin can have in terms of giving people an exit from the traditional financial system. Um, I think it's really, really important to give people, um, and Bitcoin has now solved those three problems, um, that you now have the ability if you choose, and granted there's lots of problems in managing your life around Bitcoin, but if you choose, you can own your own money, you can spend your own money, and there is a monetary policy that is apolitical um, and tends to reward the saver if you can save for the long term um, and is an exit from the traditional financial system. And I believe that that's a really, really important force, not in just giving people an exit and the ability to choose that system, but also making traditional finance more honest and traditional currencies more honest. And when I think of Bitcoin today, I think of it not only as giving you the ability to own your own money, spend your own money, and have a monetary policy based upon equity rather than debt and a fixed supply. Um, I also see it as regulating the regulator. Um, so there's always been a problem in the world, and the financial crisis was a big example of um, when institutions become too big to fail, you can co-opt regulators in order to keep the system alive. Um, but I see Bitcoin as a force that regulates the regulator. I think financial institutions, I think governments, and I think more than ever since we've seen Facebook um, with Libra, all around the world scrambling at how they're going to create better versions of their own fiat currencies and try and make their systems better as a result of people being able to make a choice and exodus out if they choose. So I see this 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 Bitcoin. Um, as you know, this decentralized force that can regulate regulators, give people choice by checking them, basically, like well, creating an alternative system that gets rid of the monopoly, so the regulators know that there's this alternative system out there. They start, be, you know, misbehaving. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Exactly that. Like you know, today everything's about anti-money laundering, and the user experience of money has got so bad. To the point where when I decided to purchase my house, um, because um, I was using Bitcoin in order to make that purchase, and I need, the person that wanted to buy it wanted fiat, um, it took me nine months of uh, source of funds, source of wealth. You know, I was chugging along with Bitcoin. I could spend that however I want. Um, but when I wanted to get that into fiat in order to purchase a house, it took nine months of source of funds, source of wealth, KYC, forensic investigations to ensure that the money hadn't gone through, um, you know, a, a Silk Road or anything like that, and tracing the, the blockchain all the way back to prove how I originally acquired them. Um, and that's all because I'm intersecting with the fiat system. And so what I see is when people, you know, at the end result would be, that the person that wanted to sell the house to me probably would have accepted Bitcoin in the end because it's driving Bitcoin adoption because the user of experience of on-ramping and off-ramping and using fiat money is getting worse and worse and worse. And today we've, I, I don't know how we got here, but somehow we have accepted as a society that it's okay that we don't own our money. I, I look at my money in a bank and I say to myself, when I try and move it, you know, if it's greater than a certain sum, I'm lucky today if the bank will let me send that to where I want it to go. I'm lucky if I'm able to spend my own money. I'm lucky, um, you know, I don't see it as the money that I, that I have at a bank, I see as there's a strong possibility uh, that that money might disappear one day or I might not be able to spend it as I want 
or um, you know, I have to uh, give give up all of my privacy and all of my 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 data in order to just use that money. And that's assuming everything goes right. Like I could tell you horror stories of when things go wrong. Um, just being able to get your money back, and the banks will operate as oh, it's not it's not your money. You know, um, I'll give you an example. I had to send a, a fairly large uh, check to someone in the six figures, um, around a hundred thousand dollars, and they would only accept a cashier's check. So I, I, I took, the, I got, I went to the bank. I got a cashier's check, um, and I, I had to send it in the mail. I send it like overnight, and the person, for whatever reason, it was a large, you know, company, and they lost the cashier's check. It never got to the mail room. Whatever happened. Two weeks later, no one knows what a cashier's check is. Now, the money's out of my account because it's a cashier's check. It's not in the other company's account, um, and I needed it to be or else, a lot, you know, I needed them to have that money or else I would lose out on a very big opportunity. Um, and so I, wa- I, I walked into the bank saying, okay, no big deal. Just th- they'll cancel it, right? And they'll issue me a new one. And the bank said, okay, we can do that. But it takes 90 days for them to issue you a new check. And I said, you're telling me that I'm basically going to be out this money for 90 days when all you need to do is cancel that that cashier's check. So if someone tries to cash it, it won't go through. What type of – we live in 2019. We don't have the technology to can't to make a check not be able to be cashable. Are you kidding me? 90 days I have to wait? And I, I literally was almost going to sue the bank because of this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah, and there's, there's many, many stories just like that. And that is a function of the fact that we as a society have accepted that it's okay, that we can't use, that the money that we think is ours is not ours. Um, and we think that's okay. And we've accepted that. Um, and fundamentally, I think that that's a, that's a, a real issue that needs to be addressed. You know what, though, but it's, these stories that I just said that you've had, these stories have been going on since our parents and our grandparents. They've been going on forever, but there was never an alternative, right? Now with Bitcoin and with cryptocurrency, with, you know, you look at all these companies, there are so many crypto companies now um, that are offering banking uh, services with crypto. There are companies um, that are that actually sponsor some of my friends' podcasts um, that offer the ability, and you can go online and Google them, that offer the ability to um, get credit with your crypto, you know, be able to take loans, um, be able to invest your crypto and get, you know, eight, nine percent interest off of it. Uh, credit cards, like little all banking institutions um, and services all happen automatically now. You don't have to go through all this red tape because now there's there's an alternative. And so when you talk about like checking the banks and checking the regulators, I think that's what you mean, right? It's like now that there are all these alternative uh, uh, services that you can do, slowly but surely, it's like we're converting people over from the alternative. So, you know, someone said like, oh, we need to end the Fed. But I remember someone, uh, I don't know if you're Josh Harvey. He said this so many years ago, and I'll never forget it. He was one of the founders of Lemisau, uh, Bitcoin ATMs. Josh Harvey said to me, he's like, Charlie, we don't need to end the Fed. We need to transcend the Fed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's exactly one of the realizations that we came to. We were spending, you know, b- before Bitcoin and before um, we were spending so much time uh, trying to, uh, you know, persuade bankers, politicians and people that there was a problem within their system. Um, and nobody was, you know, really interested in, in hearing those things. Um, and so the end, the end result that we came up with, and the reason we wanted to create a bank was we just got to create it and show it what it can look like um, and, and, and transcend. It didn't quite work out that way. But thank God Bitcoin came along um, and uh, we created a platform whereby we could allow uh, companies that were going to disrupt one area at a time uh, every single financial product. And we believe that we are in the midst of the, you know, the disruption of a multi-trillion dollar industry. Uh, one financial product at a time, one step at a time. And it's just amazing to see what's happening now. You know, now you can take your crypto that you might not want to sell, that you want to save, 
um, collateralize it, get a fiat loan. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, there's, there's so many interesting use cases that are just coming out um, as a result of this. And really, it's transitioning people. I see people that are onboarding into crypto. Um, they're swapping a debt-based monetary system for an equity-based system. And it's encouraging savings. It's encouraging people to, you know, uh, use their, their crypto more like a, a collateral system. Um, and uh, all these financial products are being built one step at a time. Is transitioning the system. Um, I do believe that the next step is going is that governments and central banks around the world are going to create their own digital currencies. They won't compete with Bitcoin, just like Facebook doesn't compete with Bitcoin. But I believe that those digital currencies are going to be used in the next financial crisis to allow the banks to go bust, and they'll be replacing people's money. Um, at a bank with you really think that you think Um, the catalyst to to really mass adoption of crypto is the next financial meltdown that we go through i mean how do you see that playing out um the way that i see it right now is that we have 240 trillion dollars of global debt which is completely unsustainable unheard of an experiment that uh we can the, the the global financial system is in an experiment that we have never, ever ventured to before in terms of the level of indebtedness and rehypothecation of that debt. Um, we are in a complete Ponzi scheme in our traditional financial system. Um, during the next financial crisis, um, there is systemic risk in the system. And during the next financial crisis, I don't think that the policies that they've used in the past are going to work anymore. We're at negative interest rates, so they can't lower interest rates anymore. Um, QE is maxed out. Uh, they can't pump more debt from a central bank in. They're uh, still doing they, it. They, they will still do that. So they'll rehypothecate for as long as they can. Um, the ba- bail-ins are just too unpleasant um, for you know, ending the reputation of banks in the system. Bailouts will lead to riots in the street if it ever happens again. And so the only tool that I think that uh, central banks are left with is replacing debt-based money that was created at a bank with their own digital currency. And what I think will happen during the next financial crisis is they're just going to replace money that was created as debt at a bank. So let's say you had $10,000 at Chase. They'll They'll let Chase go bankrupt. And you will download a digital wallet at the central bank and you will have your 10,000 balance. Um, but it will be the digital currency, stable coin, whatever you want to call it, that was created at the central bank. You're just replacing one form of money with another. Now, then when you've got a central bank, fintech companies, obviously the central bank doesn't want to be the retail bank. So they will open up their API keys and allow fintech companies to build on top of it. Um, and uh, that's where I think you're going to see mass disruption and moving towards, I'm not saying that's a better system. Um, it will probably be a worse system because at least when your money was created through a bank, you were one step removed from the central bank. Under this system, privacy has gone. You know, when you step across the border, if the government doesn't like uh, what you've done with your money or if they think that you owe them tax and you're trying to dispute that you're not, they're going to switch your passport off connected to your wallet. Um, this is where we're moving. Uh, they're going to make cash illegal. They're going to replace it all with central bank created digital currency. Um, and Bitcoin is a very, very, very important counterforce um, in order to keep those systems more honest. But it's clear to me where it's going. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think, again, mass, mass adoption. I think it's always going to be driven by the need to use it. And, you know, uh, these different use cases give people reasons to investigate it. Um, And I think at least the whole world knows Bitcoin exists right now. Wherever I go in the most obscure corner of the world, everyone I speak to has now heard of Bitcoin, which is incredible. They've heard of Bitcoin. They are fascinated and curious, but I don't think we've gotten to a point where they trust it more than they trust their financial institutions yet i mean talking about like mass adoption and that'll come but i don't think we're there yet but the fact that everyone knows about it and is curious about it is is the first very very important step 
Sure, and that, that's what creates the, the, the hodl opportunity. So when, when people ask me what Bitcoin is, I tell them it's a, it's a speculative store of value. Um, and so what does that actually mean? Well, it means the majority of the world think that Bitcoin is a, a Ponzi scheme, a scam, or a currency for drug dealers still. Um, and as long as people still think that, then we're never going to reach a stable price. Um, because it's not a scam, a, a currency just for drug dealers or a Ponzi scheme, um, one step at a time, the world is going to discover that and, and, and realize that. And so a store of value is something like gold, which is you use it in order to maintain value. You don't use it as an investment. Um, you use it because you want to preserve value. Um, and so Bitcoin can become a store of value one day, but only the day that everyone stops thinking that it's a Ponzi scheme, a currency just for drug dealers and a scam. And so the opportunity to get returns is speculating on whether Bitcoin can become a store of value. The day that everybody um, knows that Bitcoin is just something you can utilize, it will probably become very stable currency. Um, but the speculative opportunity is that while it's a speculative store of value, there's the opportunity for people that believe that uh, before others to make supernormal profits. And that's the way that I see it as the space that we're in is that eventually this will become a medium of exchange and unit of account. But while it's in the speculative stage of speculating whether it can become a store of value, um, is where there's massive opportunities for price deviations uh, based upon um, people's perception of adjusting to what Bitcoin actually is. And so that's where we are right now. We're in the, and it's interesting you say that because I think that um, Bitcoin and I, you know, like, let's just say Bitcoin for now. And we're talking about the whole crypto space in general. I think that, um, you know, it is this like socioeconomic experiment where we're trying to, we're theorizing, right? We, you and I believe that this will become an, an amazing store of value and unit of account. But at this point, we're still in that hypothesis stage, this experimentation. And so all this massive speculation, which provides for the opportunities because there's risk, um, that's like the testing phase, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I do believe that we've reached a phase now where Bitcoin is too important to fail. Um it, it, while there might be some kind of technological black swan event, um, it feels like Bitcoin, you know, compared to what it was like in the past, you know, we, I mean, over the years, there were so many times when we were like, oh my God, Bitcoin is not going to get through this. It's, it can't get past this because it was so fragile back in the day. Um, but today, it really feels, in my mind, like this, this unstoppable force now that would require a real black swan event in order to prevent hey, it. Everyone, thanks stage. for listening. And it's just too important to felt. There's too many people that care about this. Um, it's just, you know, that's why I was really, you know, kind of scarred by the scaling debate. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, it, it, this, this thing, people forgot who the true enemy was. People forgot the you know the banking system is what we need to be fighting against we don't need to be fighting in you know amongst each other um and it was it was a painful phase to see that um but then again you know upon reflection it's all a part of the growth and the story and, and why we're here today and everyone learned a lot out of out of what came from that and so simon dixon ceo of bank to the future believes that bitcoin is too big to fail the yeah. irony in that absolutely simon thank you so much for coming on the show i really appreciate it um how can our listeners find you and follow what you're going to be up to in the next uh, few years um so those that are you know interested in investing in this uh, area then bank to the future.com is, is still working still what we work on you can invest in the largest companies in crypto um and uh, me personally uh, I give my views. I'm mainly active on Twitter. I give daily recordings as uh, the whole environment unfolds. And you can get me on at Simon Dixon Twit. We will have it, all the information in our show notes as well. I really like your, your daily videos that you've been doing lately. And I see you've been getting a lot of views for that. So congratulations. Um, and I'll have all the information in the show notes. Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Hey, Charlie, thanks for having me and thanks for all you do. Um, a really important part of the ecosystem is documenting this history. So I'm a real big fan of the project and I'll do everything I can to help more people find it. Thank you. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Scott Offord, the creator of Crypto Mining. Scott's a broker of ASIC mining gear and helps people buy and sell their miners. He created a Bitcoin mining profitability calculator and an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart that you can find at cryptomining.tools. It's the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI. That includes the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. The calculator lets you put in your estimated uptime to give you a more realistic profit projections. So check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.